the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Something certainly big developed in my life, and it is the bane of every radio announcer in the country, and that is a chronic cough. Long-term listeners to this program will probably remember those days. Certainly my engineer is he's shaking head yes with his finger dutifully poised over the mute button during that period of time. I will call what I thought was a season of dealing with post-nasal drip. I'm an allergy sufferer. It's something that's been in the family. So uh, for me, it just seemed to be load up on Mucinex and make sure you take your allergy medication and surely... This will finally go away. Well, days turned into weeks, turned into months. The cough became worse. And I'll never forget my reaction going into my doctor's office, describing the symptoms. And the next thing the doctor did was hand me a prescription for anti-reflux medication. And I sort of laughed it off. And I said, wow, what, me? I don't even suffer from heartburn. This cannot possibly be acid reflux. There's something else going on here. Of course, you know, I, I'm not a doctor, but I played one on the radio. And, of course, the Internet gives us all the answers, right? So I would certainly know more than my physician would, wink, wink. To which my doctor replied, give it a month. If it's still an issue in a month, you call me. We'll take another look at it. Well, within a couple of three weeks, it was clear that my doctor had nailed it right on the head. That as I've gotten older, and as our diets, quite frankly, are not what they used to be, this became a pretty bad problem for me. But is medication necessarily the singular answer to dealing with acid reflux? And if not, what can we be doing to address this issue? Joining me now is celebrated physician Dr. Jamie Kaufman, author of a number of best-selling books, including Dropping Acid, The Reflux Diet Cookbook and Cure, The Chronic Cough Enigma, And her latest book, Dr. Kaufman's Acid Reflux Diet, that includes 111 all-new recipes, including vegan and gluten-free. Dr. Kaufman is one of the country's leading laryngologists and founder and director of the Voice Institute of New York and serves currently as professor of otolaryngology at the uh, the New York Eye and Ear Infirmary of Mount Sinai. And Dr. Kaufman, thanks so much for being with us. Oh, it's a pleasure. And boy, is your story an exemplary one. You know, it just kind of a textbook in that regard. And it was just one of those issues where, uh, I mean, I've suffered with allergies my entire life. And all of a sudden, I started noticing this, this cough creeping in and could not have believed that it would have ever been associated with something like acid reflux. But at the end of the day, that certainly seems to be the case. But I, I suppose the big question is this. You know, we're in this society today apt to want to take a pill to fix things that typically addresses symptoms but doesn't get to 
the real causes. So I guess just leading out the gate, perhaps we can use myself as a guinea pig here tonight, Dr. Coffin. Um, is this a case where all of a sudden in my early 50s, my stomach is producing more acid than it should? Or what's really going on here? Well, first of all, reflux simply means backflow. So it's backflow from the stomach. And the idea that people would have heartburn, and everybody knows what that looks like on TV. You see somebody who's overeaten, who's uh, burping and clutching his chest or bursting into flames. It turns out that this is actually incorrect. The majority of people who have reflux don't have heartburn. So that, that in itself is, a, is sort of a wake-up call. So, well, wait a minute. If they don't have heartburn or indigestion, uh, the, the, the next question is, what do they have? So post-nasal drip, chronic throat clearing, a sensation of a lump in the throat, cough, particularly a wet cough when you bring up stuff, um, hoarseness, particularly morning hoarseness, waking up in the middle of the night, uh, with coughing and choking, gasping for air like a fish out of water, asthma, uh, allergy symptoms, and even sinus problems. So it turns out that there are probably 125 million Americans that have reflux, and only about 25 million of those people have heartburn as their major symptoms. So that means all these other things are a surprise, and not only are they a surprise to people like you, you, weren't, you were surprised when your doctor said you had silent reflux, but indeed they're also surprises to many physicians. So credit and kudos to your physician for getting it right. Now let's talk about exactly what's going on here. Uh, when we talk about acid reflux, and you referred to it just a moment ago, doctor, as silent reflux, what is the difference between that and traditional quote-unquote heartburn? Well, you know, if you think about it, I don't know how old you are, but I mean, I'm pushing 70. So when I grew up, my mother put dinner on the table at 6 o'clock. You, you could set your clock by her. And uh, the, everything was local. The, the chickens came from a local person. Um, all the vegetables came locally. We did not go out to eat very often. Maybe uh, once a month we'd go to a steakhouse or a, for a restaurant. And um, uh, uh, there was no fast food. People weren't drinking soda pop all day. So in our lifetimes, in my lifetime, the obesity epidemic, the diabetes epidemic, the reflux epidemic, the asthma epidemic, the sleep apnea epidemic, and a whole host of other medical problems that have exploded are actually all related. And mostly they have to do with how our diets and our lifestyles have changed. We eat later, we eat worse, we eat chemicals, we eat acids, and so on. Uh, if, if you asked me, however, what silent reflux is, silent reflux is reflux that occurs at night while you're asleep. So you don't have heartburn. Maybe you don't wake up. But it causes all kinds of mischief, including in the sinuses and the nose and the throat. And then when you wake up in the morning, you have sinus, nose, and throat symptoms. So silent reflux is predominantly nighttime reflux, and it usually occurs with people who eat late, who eat too much in the evening, who don't have much breakfast or lunch, 
and who eat not very healthy foods. I have to wonder too, doctor, in, in terms of the impact. I mean, in my case, it was clearly irritating the back of my throat. And the minute that we addressed it over a short period of time, suddenly this chronic hacking cough went away. But I have to wonder, too, I mean, acid, uh, I've got to imagine for certain parts of the esophagus and upper throat area can't be good. I mean, the stomach is designed to have acid and and acid serves a very important function, doesn't it? It's just when it gets to the wrong places that it becomes problematic. Well, you're absolutely correct. Not only is, is it not belong in the throat, when you look at the lining membranes of, say, the vocal cords, those membranes are a thousand times more sensitive to acid. The esophagus, the esophagus is a swallowing tube that joins the throat and the stomach. In other words, that esophagus is pretty tough. It's designed for it. Even normal people who don't have reflux disease will have some reflux some of the time after some meals. But once it gets up into the throat, by the way, we've come up with a new term called respiratory reflux. And the reason this term came about was to alert people to the idea that any respiratory symptom, in respiratory is nose, throat, voice box, bronchial tubes, lungs, the whole respiratory tract, any part of that lining is very sensitive to acid, very sensitive to digestive enzymes. And so we see these people who have been misdiagnosed or, or uncertain of what's going on all turn out to have reflux. It's about, oh, I don't know, 90% of people who have a wet cough uh, which is an awful lot of people. Chronic cough is, is one of the most common symptoms for which a person sees a doctor. Now, I have to wonder, in relationship to the impact that that acid reflux can have um, on some of those <clears throat> more sensitive tissues, does this also put, it at an, put us at an increased risk for certain types of cancer? It does. In my opinion, uh, you can get cancer without smoking, but not without reflux. And we're talking about esophageal cancer and lung cancer, throat cancer, and even mouth cancer. There's a lot of work that's been done on reflux, looking at the relationships between cancer and reflux. And reflux seems to be a big, big factor. Uh, we know for sure that a cancer of the esophagus, which is reflux caused, there's not much question about that, is the fastest growing cancer in America in terms of its incidence, up about 800% since 1970. So that's a big change, an eight, eight-fold increase in esophageal cancer. So we know that there's a relationship with cancer, but, but just as important is the relationship with asthma, with COPD, with cough, with all kinds of respiratory problems. And I think that if you look across the population, um, less than 1% or 2% are at risk for developing cancer, but a whole bunch of people are at risk for developing all these other things. By the way, including sleep disturbances and sleep apnea and snoring. They're all related in many cases, not all, but they're often related to reflux. And, of course, all of this begs the big question. If this wasn't an issue that was so widespread a generation or two ago, what's changed? Well, Dr. Kaufman hinted a moment ago to what's changed. Our lifestyles have changed. Our diets have changed. And we're taking perhaps the incorrect path to address all of this. 
Well, certainly it's great that uh, certain types of medications have been developed, including these proton pump inhibitors that can reduce the impact of acid reflux on uh, sufferers. Is it necessarily the only way to go when it comes to addressing this issue? We're going to get to that part of the equation as we continue our conversation today. We are uh, delighted to have celebrated author with us and physician Dr. Jamie Kaufman. The book is called Dr. Kaufman's Acid Reflux Diet. Uh, This on the heels of a couple of other bestsellers on the topic, Dropping Acid, the Reflux Diet Cookbook, and the Chronic Cough Enigma. We'll take a brief time out, come back to more of our conversation as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Our guest today is Professor of Otolaryngology at the New York Eye and Ear Infirmary of Mount Sinai Hospital, and also a celebrated author. Her latest of three books, Dr. Kaufman's Acid Reflux Diet. We're talking about this topic that impacts millions of American lives. And, of course, the typical response to a diagnosis, Dr. Kaufman, of acid reflux by many physicians today is to do what my doctor did, and that is write out a script and say, here, in my case, uh, 20 milligrams of uh, protonics a day, and uh, call me in a month and let me know how you're doing. Uh, That would suggest, I would imagine in my own mind, that it's like to say somebody who's constantly taking aspirin for a headache that that somehow is because they have a aspirin deficiency in their body. Uh, is this necessarily a case of my of my stomach, in my case, uh, producing more acid than it should on its own, or does a lot of this really have to do with lifestyle and diet? In other words, is this really manageable outside of taking medication? Not only is it manageable without a medication, there now is increasing evidence that the medicines that we thought were going to be so miraculous for reflux are not so miraculous. Um, right now, the, the, the group of, of medications called proton pump inhibitors, they include uh, protonics and Nexium, Dexalent, uh, Prevacid, uh, what have I left, Nexium. All of these medicines, they're, they're relatively powerful acid suppressants. But even if you take them, you still will make acid. So the best acid-suppressant medicine doesn't knock out all the acid. That's the first thing. The second thing is we've now seen a relationship with these group, PPIs, proton pump inhibitors they're called, with um, heart disease, kidney disease, bone disease, and most recently a question about uh, Alzheimer's. But actually, the most compelling argument against the use, and by the way, you were on the right way. If you're going to be on these kind of medicines, it should be in terms of weeks, not in terms of years. Um, the most compelling evidence against long-term use, and many doctors say, listen, just you know, take your pills and you can eat what you want. And the reality is that's not true. In 2014, there was a Danish national study of 10,000 people and they looked at these people and found that people who took the pills for several years had a, listen to this now, an increased, not a decreased risk, an increased risk of developing reflux-caused esophageal cancer. So what that says to me is that these pills knock down the symptoms but don't necessarily control the disease. And so that gets to root cause, root cause. Let's just say you get invited to a dinner party on a Saturday night, 8.30. And from 8.30 to 9.30, you have a glass of wine, perhaps. Or maybe you don't. You have hors d'oeuvres. And then you sit down to a rich meal, uh, uh, two, three courses, a chocolate dessert. 
and a pushback from the table at 11 o'clock or even midnight. Um, all the people at that dinner party are going to have reflux that night. You can't have a big, huge meal at that hour and not reflux all night. And so all of the risk factors, if you ask me what are the most important sort of uh, defenses that we can all apply, not eating after 8 o'clock at night, not overeating, making sure you have a reasonable diet, meaning you eat breakfast, you eat snacks, you eat lunch, you get most of your calories before 5 o'clock so you don't have to have a major refuel when you get home from work late. And then uh, Soda Pop, my first book's called Dropping Acid, and it's not called Dropping Acid for no reason. In 1973, following an outbreak of food poisoning, the FDA said you have to have a little bit of acid in everything in a bottle or a can to kill bacteria. Unfortunately, uh, people who manufacture these have decided that lots of acid must be good if a little acid kills bacteria. So we now have basically everything in a bottle or a can with the same acidity as stomach acid. I know that's hard to believe. So cutting, out, cutting away from not only you know, a soda pop, but also other uh, beverages that are bottled, even things that look, look healthy like energy drinks and fruit juices have acid added. And then not too high fat. And so the, the bottom line is lean, clean, green, and alkaline. And alkaline or alkaline means I'm not too much acid in the diet. By the way, I'm not a big fan of apple cider vinegar for reflux. Yeah, I, I've heard that reported as a, as a uh, one method of dealing with it. I, I never quite bought into that. I mean, for me, if I was really desperate, a little glass of milk seems to do the trick. Yes, milk is al- alkaline, by the way. For people who don't know, um, alkaline is the opposite of acids. So if you take something that's alkaline and something that's acidic, it gets neutralized. And so um, of all the things out there, there's something called alkaline water. And indeed, a water will percolate through the ground and become anti-acid or alkaline. So alkaline water is really quite good for refluxers. And many people with reflux will tell how when they started drinking alkaline water, it helped their reflux quite a bit. So there is a degree to which trying to balance the pH levels does make sense. But as you're suggesting too, doctor, just in terms of of the the schedule and manner in which we eat, not encouraging your stomach to go into high production of acid because it's just finished a huge meal and is now going to be working on breaking that down over the next several hours that we're sleeping is probably one of the smartest ways to start. Well, you know, let's just talk about what happens when you lie down. If your stomach's full, you lose gravity, right? Stuff doesn't run uphill as well as it runs through a flat canal. So you lose gravity. You lose the benefit of being upright. The second thing is if you, let's just pretend you're a little overweight. When you lie down, the weight of your abdomen, of your belly, let's just say you've got a beer belly, the weight of that belly is now pushing on your stomach. And for people who are really overweight, um, it doesn't really even matter whether they eat, they're going to be pushing on their stomach all night, even with a little bit of acid, it's coming up. So being overweight certainly is a factor in eating um, and lying down. And, and by the way, it's not just, uh, it's a, let's just say, you know, you had a busy day at work, you finished late, you went and, went and exercised at the gym, you got home, you didn't really have time for lunch, you're starving. Um, now what happens is that you're having a, the biggest meal of the day at 8.30. So that, I've said it twice, and so I'll, I'll make it the last time, 
that's probably the greatest risk factor there is for silent reflux. So that gets to the question of what do you do? What I recommend for people, and by the way, you asked an important question that I never answered. How do you know if you have reflux? There's something called the Reflux Symptom Index, which is a quiz. It's on my website. It's in every one of my books. It takes about a minute to fill it out. You circle uh, nine items from zero to five, and if your score is 15 or more on the Reflux Index, then you have a 90% chance of having reflux. So you can look at those symptoms and fill out those uh, circles and see if you've got uh, likely to have reflux. By the way, I did take the test, and I came in at a 27. So. Yeah, well, yeah, sir, that's 27. <laughs> yeah. That- yeah, looking at all the symptoms based on what was happening at the time I was diagnosed a year and a half ago, uh, I said, okay, well, yeah, here we are, 27. I guess we answered that question. Hey, if you've just joined us, Dr. Jamie Kaufman is with us today. We're dealing with an issue that, quite frankly, millions of Americans are facing, myself included, and that is acid reflux. And as we're learning, the pill prescription might seem to be an easy way out, but it's not the best way out. And some of this research, including the Danish study to which Dr. Kaufman just referred to a moment ago, is in fact beginning to demonstrate that taking of medications to deal with acid reflux might in fact be exacerbating the problem and making the circumstances even worse. So what do we do? Certainly we know acid production is necessary as fashion in which the body, the stomach, breaks down foods and processes foods for energy and calories that you need and all of that. But yet, our diets today, increased use of preservatives that are in there, as Dr. Coffin mentions, a high degree of acidity as a preservative in so many foods today. And when you add to that eating late, eating too much, it just becomes a recipe for disaster. All right, speaking of recipes, so then as we've understood what some of the causes are, and we know what the general medical community has done to try to address it, simply give you a pill, what's the better way out? If that's is needed, then how do we manage it better? And how do we deal with this matter of lifestyle and diet? We're going to get to that part of the conversation. Our discussion today with Dr. Jamie Kaufman, a look at Acid Reflux Diet, the new book, by the way, newly published, available at bookstores throughout the Bay Area, as well as through the usual suspects, Amazon.com. And you can also get it through Dr. Kaufman's website, voiceinstituteofnewyork.com. That's Voice, like voice, aw, voiceinstituteofnewyork.com. We'll take a brief time out, come back to more remarks and insights as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. She is professor of otolaryngology at the New York Eye and Ear Infirmary of Mount Sinai Hospital and also the author of a number of best-selling books, including the latest, Dr. Kaufman's Acid Reflux Diet. We're talking about this topic of acid reflux, what it is, how to address it. So far, the medical community largely, and I don't wish this to be a blanket accusation, but largely the idea of writing a prescription, sending you home with some medication, seems to be the way we've addressed it. But as Dr. Kaufman...
Kaufman is pointing out, that really is addressing a symptom. It's not getting to the root causes, such as eating too late, eating too much, uh, eating, quite frankly, uh, the wrong kind of diet. Toward that end, let's get into some of the the key points here, if you can, Dr. Kaufman. Uh, The book, by the way, I'll mention for listeners, has an exhausted list of complete entrees and recipes toward the back. As we mentioned, over 111 new recipes. But as we talk about some of the major categories, Dr. Kaufman, to avoid, which ones are sort of the worst when it comes to being contributory to acid reflux? Well, there are different mechanisms of reflux. So fat makes the uh, uh, for reflux high-fat meals. Um, acid makes for reflux um, caffeine and nicotine, they make uh, the valves relax and make for reflux. And uh, so if you, if you ask me what I recommend, if, let's just say you take the quiz and you say, gee, I think I have silent reflux or it's, it's a real possibility. What I recommend is a two-week reflux detox. Um, it's not easy. The only fruit you can have is melons and bananas. The only meat you can have is poultry or fish. I consider fish like meat. Um, no condiments, uh, only egg whites, um, nothing out of a bottle or a can except water, or one cup of coffee a day uh, or tea. Uh, no alcohol. If you drink alcohol, it must be zero. And then the kitchen must close by 7 o'clock, assuming you go to bed at 11. So that it's a strict two-week detox. And usually what happens is in two weeks people go, whoa, my cough has stopped, whoa. My voice has been okay, or my throat clearing is better, or this lump in the throat doesn't feel so uh, worrisome and annoying. So at the end of two weeks, people then say, okay, what do I do now? The detox is listed in all the books, and it's easily found, this detox diet. And it's a list of things you can eat rather than can't eat. By the way, nothing fried, and the only uh, of the fats that we permit, no butter, is olive oil. So it's pretty, pretty tight. And if you really think about it, what it is is lean, clean, green, and alkaline. Lean, uh, there's no red meat or very little red meat thereafter, after the detox phase. You shouldn't be having red meat every day. Um, Clean is a very important concept. If you have an energy bar that you love and you turn it over to read the ingredients and it has 16 unpronounceable chemicals on the back, um, presume that it's poison and you should try and find a new one that's much more natural and has fewer chemicals. I mean, many, many of the manufacturers are beginning to start taking out some of these chemicals and these preservatives. They're not good for you. And so that gets uh, to, to, to green. We know what green means. Green means organic, which is another way of clean. And also, of course, uh, 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 greens are good for you. So you start having things like this morning I had a three-egg omelet with one yolk and, and lox smoked salmon. And then uh, for lunch we got uh, roasted chicken with uh, vegetables and potatoes. For a snack I had a Fuji apple um, and uh, then an avocado. And for dinner I had uh, a, a sushi. So, you know, I'm not saying you should eat like that every day, but it does represent a paradigm shift compared to, um, you know, two cheeseburgers, fries, and a Coke. And as you're suggesting here, uh, 
there are a lot of foods that are really triggers, essentially, that the stomach says, okay, I'm going to have a lot of work to do here. There's much more that has to be or something that's more difficult to digest, like red meats. And so, therefore, it's stimulating additional acid reproduction. Is that accurate? Well, it stays in the stomach a long time, red meat. And, uh, and, and by the way, you brought up a very important word, the word trigger. Um, you've implied that it makes more acid. I'm not sure whether it makes more acid, but it makes reflux of the acid that's in the stomach come up. And so among the big triggers, for some people, by the way, none of them, uh, these things that I'm going to mention are for everyone. Um, chocolate is a big trigger food for some people, particularly uh, milk chocolate. Um, alcohol is a big trigger. Uh, onions, garlic, tomatoes, peppers, um, nuts, particularly macadamia nuts and cashews, the safest of the nuts for the reflux are, are, are uh, um, uh, pistachios and almonds. And um, uh, uh, too much caffeine, there's probably nothing wrong with a cup of coffee for most people, or two, or even three. But if you're drinking a pot of coffee before noon, you'd probably have reflux regardless of whether coffee is an actual trigger food. It's the caffeine. So, you know, the question is, what do people do? And in many cases, they, they double down on their mistakes. And so I think what starts to happen, the reason I've done what I've done, the reason my work um, is, uh, I believe, is important, is it, it addresses the basic question of what does represent healthy eating? What do we know today? And most importantly, I think, as you've underscored both in our conversation today and throughout the book, simply taking a medication and thinking we can take this one little tiny pill a day and eat whatever we want, whenever we want, is is largely really been a, a wives' tale, hasn't it? It's dead wrong. In fact, I mean... Uh, we, at least in my practice, virtually every single patient who comes to me is already on the medicine. So we know that there are millions of people who even on the medicine uh, are suffering. Uh, by the way, I should mention that it's not, it never should have been allowed to have these kind of medicines over the counter. And here's why. Uh, the medicine, uh, when you buy it, it says take it for two weeks. Well, what happens after two weeks is people stop cold turkey. And about half of people, when they stop cold turkey, then that's when you get this hyperacidity. That's when you have this, what we call, rebound hyperacidity. So what happens is they were doing sort of okay for two weeks, and they quit, and they get terrible symptoms. And then what do they do is they, they, they tough it out for a little while, and the next thing, yeah, they're back on the medicine for two more weeks. And so although this is good for drug sales, and for the, for, for the manufacturers, it's not so good for people who do it. So this question about medication, I should point out that there is another class of medicine that, that is safer and that can be taken on an as-needed basis. And although it's a medical term, they're called H2 antagonists. And the three that are available are Zantac, Tagamet, and Pepsid. And those three are much safer over the long haul. They can be taken, gee, I'm having some symptoms, and I'm going to take these for a few days or a week and even longer. And, in fact, we use them in pregnancy. Interesting. At the end of the day, then, doctors, you're suggesting that the, the, the real way to address this issue is by a change in lifestyle and diet. And that then raises, I think, uh, the, the final important question for everyone eavesdropping on our conversation, and that is, of your patients, 
that move toward the healthier lifestyle and the the more friendly diet, how many are able to get completely off of any sort of uh, of the proton pump inhibitors and be able to remain essentially acid free in terms of its impact? The vast majority, when patients come to me, they're highly motivated. People who have you know terrible problems breathing, people who have had multiple sinus surgeries, people who are miserable. Um, those people um, who are willing to stick with the program, what I tell them is, listen, you're going to be under my care for a year. Um, you're going to go on medicine to start out with varieties of different types of medicine, not just acid suppressants, by the way. And the goal is to be medicine-free and asymptomatic and essentially healthy without any reflux a year from now. And that means that they will have, in many cases, lost weight, in many cases, their cholesterols are better, their diabetes is under control. So we're talking about basically a big, 50, you know, like a 50,000-mile tune-up. In my experience, uh, 90% of our patients uh, get substantial improvement and the majority get well. Wow. That's a pretty remarkable uh, response rate and, and one that I think ought to give encouragement to all of us. The book is called Dr. Kaufman's Acid Reflux Diet. It includes 111 all-new recipes, including vegan and gluten-free, and it's available at bookstores throughout the Bay Area. You can also order the book online through Dr. Kaufman's website, voiceinstituteofnewyork.com. That's voiceinstituteofnewyork.com. And our thanks to best-selling author and physician, Dr. Jamie Kaufman, for being with us on this segment of Lifeline. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. If you Google Romans 12, beyond the passage itself that will come up, you'll also find Pastor Chip Ingram's name. It comes up as one of the many page results, and ironically enough, I think not only the association with uh, Pastor Chip Ingram because of his life verse, but also his life work. You're familiar with, of course, his ministry. He is speaker on the nationally syndicated broadcast Living on the Edge, the author of more than a dozen best-selling books, and senior pastor at Venture Christian Church. And as always, Pastor Chip, great to have you on the program. Craig, it's an honor. We go back, wow, 18, 19 years. Well, we were both a lot younger, but still as good looking, I want absolutely, to say. <laughs> absolutely. Your wife was telling me you're looking great. That's it. <laughs> now, Chip, I've got to say something. It, it's not all that frequent that you can Google a Bible passage and find an association show up on the Internet that not only ties into one's life verse, but also one's life work. And that certainly is the case with you with Romans 12, isn't it? Well, it's very interesting because I had no idea that that was true until I'm sitting here thinking, did he just make that up or is that true? Uh, but yeah, I mean, I really believe Romans 12 uh, is followed by 11 chapters of grace and clearly outlines um, in, in a way that you can measure what a, what a genuine, authentic follower, a disciple is of Jesus. And so I, I wrote a book on that, and you know, then we've created you know, small group resources for it, and radio messages, and then literally, wow, I mean, thousands and thousands of churches have gone through, you know, that study. And what I love about it, it's, you know, it's not venture, it's not, you know, any denomination, it's not any high-profile pastor, it's just the Bible. And uh, so the Lord's really used it, and I had no idea 
Uh, I'm honored that uh, I could be associated with Romans 12. So. You know, it's interesting because so much of that, and not just the entire book, but specifically that passage, focuses on relationships. And at the end of the day, God is really in the relationship business, isn't he? I mean, he, he sent his son to die on a cross to pay the ultimate sacrifice for the entire world, for all of his creation, all of mankind, that through that sacrifice we might be forgiven, be reconciled, so that we could walk in fellowship in relationship with him. Yeah, for those that might be, you know, either driving or listening or jogging or, you know, streaming KFAX and thinking, you know what, I wish I was a little bit more familiar with Romans 12 so I knew what they were talking about. I've taught this a lot, and it has five relationships and basically says the follower of Jesus whose heart is, you know, not none of us are perfect, but is in line with God's heart. The five relationships are God the world system, ourselves, believers and unbelievers. And the, the thumbnail sketch is that an authentic follower of Jesus is surrendered to God, verse 1, separate from the world's values, verse 2, has a sober self-assessment, verses 3 through 8, is serving in love in the body of Christ, uh, verses 9 through 13, and then 14 to 21 talks about uh, we as believers uh, are overcoming evil with good, supernaturally. So that that's a thumbnail sketch for those that are just feeling a little bit out of it. And those Roman 12 principles on relationships, that was very influential in your coming to Christ, wasn't it? I, I remember reading about you that you grew up kind of as a Midwestern kid in Columbus, Ohio. You were churched, but not necessarily at a Bible-believing church, which I always find to be a little bit of a dichotomy. You're a church, but not a Bible-believing one. Tell us about that. Well, I, um, I, I went to a social, non-Bible-believing church that was characterized probably like a lot of people, you know, no one expected anyone to live. Uh, the, the sermons were, you know, I can't remember many of them. Um, I think someone got up and read a little passage, but, um, you know, basically I got to be about 16 and thought, I think this is sort of uh, brainwashing to keep kids on the semi-straight and narrow until they get old enough to realize there's not an Easter Bunny, there's not a Santa Claus, and no one takes God seriously. And so I just opted out and said, you know, I don't know if there's a God, but if he's like these people, and not that I was any better, but it was just like, man, this is this is lame. And so I just opted out, and, um, you know, I, someone probably made everything. I didn't give much thought. And it was, um, I was uh, a literally basketball junkie gym rat, and I'm not very big, and so I played, I mean, without exaggeration, eight, nine hours a day. And my dream was to have a, you know, get a basketball scholarship, and by God's grace, I did. But the football coach, I didn't play football, but I have no idea why. He said, hey, there's like 600 of some of the best athletes in Kentucky, West Virginia, and Ohio that are going to be at this camp. Would you like to go and really get you ready for college? And you know, my job was delayed a week, and I thought, shoot. He says, I'll pay your way. I thought, sounds better all the time. But he didn't mention too much what FCA stood for, <laughs> Fellowship of Christian Athletes. And I'll never forget, and maybe some some people can really relate this. I remember going to this camp, and, you know, they give you a T-shirt with a big cross on it. I'm going, uh-oh. And then they gave me a, a, a little Bible that I'd never, never read the Bible, never opened it in my life. And fortunately, a little bit later, it was pretty easy to read. It was like the Good News version. And then people were, like, saying Jesus' name out loud. And I I mean, it was like, oh, my, I've been sort of dropped into the land of Jesus freaks. And the word, when Jesus came out of my mouth, it was uh, probably after getting my finger stoved or missing a shot. 
and I had other things that went along with his name. And it was like, oh, my gosh, what have I got myself into? It really seemed out of place, too, because as you describe your early church experience, it sounded like what you did on Sunday for an hour or two yeah. had no bearing on the Monday through Saturday existence all. whatsoever. It was sit, kneel, stand, sit, kneel, stand, let's get this done quickly. And uh, and so, yeah, I was really out of place. And, and what, But what I do remember, I went, Tom Landry spoke, you know, he was the Cowboys, um, Dallas Cowboys coach at the time. And there was, man, there was like three, four, five, I mean, professional athletes and a bunch of college athletes. And the sports part of it was awesome. And uh, I was not, I did not open that Bible the first two or three days. They were not going to brainwash me. And by about day number three, I just thought either these, how can 600 people be such good actors? Because they seem like they really care. In fact, they seem like they love one another. And I'll never forget walking off the field. It was the wide receiver for the Atlanta Falcons and the fullback for uh, University of Illinois. And, I mean, I was drenched in sweat, and I couldn't have been 145 pounds, six foot 145, skinny little white kid. And I'm walking behind these two, and they're having this deep man-to-man conversation. I've never heard a man talk to another man at that level. And the one guy, in a, in a very appropriate way, had his arm on the shoulder of the younger fullback in and as they walked off, and I couldn't hear all the words, and they didn't even notice me. But it was like, it was like this. now I look back, I didn't know what it was, but it was like the Spirit of God took that snapshot and entered into my heart and said, this, this is what life's really about. And I remember the thought walking behind him is, I don't know what they have, but I want that. I mean, I was a overachieving student, an overachieving athlete, and no matter how hard I tried or what little awards I won, it was like, it's, it's empty, so you go for the next one. And it was at that camp I trusted Christ as my Savior, and uh, I wasn't a very, you know, I started reading the Bible. I, I just ate it up, Craig, and, and uh, the big moment for me was two weeks later, no one said anything to me. I hid it under my pillow. I mean, I don't think my parents would have got mad, but it would have been like, you know, is he freaking out on it? So I hid it under my pillow. I'd read it in the morning and at night. And two weeks later, I just thought, I don't cuss anymore. And it was like, where did it go? And I, had, I didn't know about renewing your mind. I had no idea what was going on. But just my desires kept changing from the inside out. So that's kind of my story. And while I was at that camp, like after three days, I mean, you know, there's 599 guys opening their Bible for 20 minutes before breakfast. As I look around, it was all outside in these rolling hills in Ohio. And, and the peer pressure got to me, so I thought, well, I'll open it. So I open it. Never opened the Bible in my life. And it says, I urge you, therefore, my dear friend, in view of all that God's done for you, that what God really wants is for you to offer yourself, your body, as a living sacrifice. Uh, this is what spiritual service is all about. And don't any longer be conformed to all the standards of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that how you actually live could demonstrate what God's will looks like. It's good, it's acceptable, it's perfect. And then it went on to say, and, and by God's grace I say to everyone among you, don't think more highly of yourself than you ought to think. And I mean, it's like a video recorder went on. And I just saw my life and I realized, I always had this question, if God exists, I wonder what he wants. And... Um, that verse of Romans 12, Who Would Ever Dream Later, was my beginning of a journey to say, wow, so he's not trying to get my money, and he's not trying to get you know, a bunch of services, 
and he's not trying me to look and act weird. God wants me. God loves me. And then when I got to the part, don't be conformed, it was like, oh, my gosh, I'm the biggest phony I know. <laughs> you know. And so that's the journey with Romans 12. And, um, you know, years later, God has used that, I think, to help a lot of other people. Pastor Chip Ingram with us today on this edition of Lifeline. Of course, he's senior pastor at Venture Christian Church down in Los Angeles. You can get more information about the ministry, by the way, online at venture.cc. That's venture.cc. We'll take a brief time out, come back to more of our visit with Pastor Chip Ingram as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Welcome back to the conversation. Special guest today, he is Pastor Chip Ingram, the author of uh, quite a number of best-selling books, speaker on the nationally syndicated broadcast Living on the Edge, and senior pastor at Venture Christian Church in Los Gatos. And Chip, just before the break, you were talking about your experience at the Fellowship of Christian Athletes camp and uh, observing those relationships, true relationships on the horizontal, and by the time you had an opportunity to first crack open the Bible and go to that Romans 12 passage, that must have not just been an eye-opener for you, but a mind-blower in realizing that your perception of Christianity was based on religion, religiosity, and all of a sudden now God is opening up this whole new world to you that it's not about religion, it's about relationship, really hit it. I, I mean, I, I remember hearing people say Jesus' name like he was a real person and like you could know him. And, and then, you know, a guy would teach every morning, but, you know, just like a half hour, and he, he read a paragraph, and then he explained it, but like it made sense. And then people were talking about having a personal relationship with God. I had never heard that phrase before, and I had no idea that a spiritual life demands a spiritual birth. But on the last night of that camp, um, I remember hearing um, Jesus speak, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man opens the door, um, I'll come into him and live with him, and he with me. And, and uh, I mean, my prayer wasn't very theological, but whatever it means for you to come into my life, I want you to. And I, I, This is new to me, but I, I actually trust that you died on the cross and you paid for my sin and rose from the dead and... So I don't know all that it means to follow you, but with all my heart, as much as I know, I'm, I'm going to follow you. And that was uh, when I trusted Christ as my Savior and, and then had a pretty rocky first couple years uh, in terms of learning to grow in Christ. I felt like I went three steps forward and two steps backward and, and then met a, uh, a bricklayer that was trained by the Navigators my first week at college, and he took me under his wing, and actually for the next three years was just a mentor and friend, and you know taught me how to have a relationship with God. It was really powerful. Your, your early passion, the early draw was basketball, as you've articulated. Um, when did the call come about? When did you start to feel that God was pulling you in a, in a very different direction? Well, I was I really struggled with uh, what to major in, and every time I grew a little bit, I, you know, when I went to college, I was going to be a lawyer because, you know, I sort of my mother said, "You got the gift of the gab, kid," and and I liked to argue, and I did well in debating, and and so I wanted to be a lawyer, have expensive suits, a pretty wife, three kids, an Irish setter, a luxury car, and a station wagon, live in the suburbs, and um, and I wanted to make a lot of money, and then, you know, so I get there, and after the first year, I'm thinking, "Wow, that that's not a very Christ-like agenda," not not 
nothing wrong with being a lawyer, but all my motives had nothing to do with God. And so, you know, um, my second year, I think, well, I should I should do something important with my life. So I'll be uh, the cure for cancer. I've always been a little bit idealistic, so I changed my major to to uh, to uh, to medicine and science. And so I did that for about a year and a half, and you know, I'm cutting open frogs and doing all this stuff. And my sister's a nurse, and I'm realizing, man, I don't I don't like this at all. And so as life went on, I kept growing spiritual. I thought, well, you know, if I even the cure from cancer, they'll 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 die, and um, and you know, what about what about their interior life? So I completely swung around and changed my major to education and psychology. So, so I had to take all. You know, I think I ended up with like 160 hours in undergraduate. Took about 20, uh, 25 a semester. I mean, I mean, I mean, it was nutty. I think 23 actually was the highest one. Because I kept changing majors, and um, and long story, I think God was was preparing me, and then afterwards I teamed up with that bricklayer. I taught school, I coached basketball, did Bible studies. I never dreamed if there was a thousand jobs, dream one thousand and one would be a pastor. I just thought, no way, I'm not holy enough, I'm not smart enough, and besides, most of the pastors I'd met, um, you know, I could just never see myself doing that. And so during the summers, I, I got recruited to play on a Christian basketball team, and we, uh, it was sort of an international version of Athletes in Action, Greg. And so we played in two summers every single country in South America except Uruguay. played every one of their national teams, selection teams, a, a game every day, shared Christ at halftime. And God gave me the opportunity to lead scores and scores of people to Christ, and then I saw all these needs around the world and I just had no idea the world was like that, and I went to grad school because I was going to be—I wanted to be a major college coach, and so I was in grad school. And we had a break, and an Australian team uh, that was associated with the organization—they—they uh, they were great guys, but they weren't that good in basketball back then. So they needed a point guard and a big guy, and the point guard uh, pulled a hamstring, and they got a call and said, "Is there any way you could join this Australian team in the Orient and play throughout all the Orient for about six weeks?" And, um, so I did in the middle of grad school, and again I saw the world. And um, so I, I was actually a school teacher and a coach, and we started a little Bible study off this campus, like we did in the in college days. And it went from three to like you know 100, 150 people. And everyone, people are starting to ask me that, will you come and teach at our our youth group or at this camp? I'm going, wait a second, I'm a school teacher. Why why would you be asking me? And uh, you know. Uh, Little by little by little, I didn't have like a lightning bolt. Uh, all I I came to is like, man, I'm getting up early to spend time with God, and I drive 40 minutes, and then I have an early morning basketball practice, then I coach, then I have an afternoon basketball practice, then I go back on the college campus to lead this ministry, and you know, like something dawned on me and the people around me. Uh, seems like you really get excited about going up on the campus and ministering to your kids. Have you you ever thought of doing this full time? And I thought. You got to be kidding, <laughs> you know. And by the way, then the thought of I'm going to have to go back to school another three or four years. <laughs> you know, I've already been to college and grad school, and then it was just honestly, it was like if you've ever been in a thick forest and been even maybe a little bit lost, and you see a little ray of light and you move toward it, and the more you move toward it, it gets lighter, lighter, lighter. Then you get the edge, and there's a meadow, and you're kind of out in the meadow, and you get you kind of big deep relief. You go, oh wow. That's what it was like for me. It just, I kept just doing the little things God showed me, and 
pretty soon I was in this meadow, and it was like, okay, Chip, you, this is what I want you to do. I want you to coach my team. And, and you know, it wasn't even be a pastor. It was just, I just want you to coach my team. And I thought, well, okay. Well, then you need to get prepared. So off the seminary I went with a wife and two kids, and the rest is history. And the irony is, in a real sense, that passion for coaching really has never left, rather. It's just shifted. You know, it strikes me, the Word tells us that God will give us the desires of our heart. Of course, He also wants our heart to be focused and our desire to be focused on Him. How interesting that that sort of came back full circle. The only difference is you're, you're, you're coaching in a bigger game where the stakes are really real, aren't they? They are, and I think it's really interesting. I had, um, I'm always a student of the game, and I, I had an amazing college coach uh, who, who actually later came to Christ, which was very, you know, I shared Christ my whole journey, and I, I don't want to get off on this too much, but it was so interesting. It was probably 15 years after I graduated from college, or maybe 20, and I got a phone call from a guy, and he said, hey, Chip, this is Tom Ackerman. I said, not yeah, Coach Ackerman. I said, Coach, what are you doing? He goes, well, and the story, he uh, lost a grandson to leukemia and was really grappling with life. He said, I went to a Christian bookstore, and I saw a book with your name on it. And he said, I shook my head. <laughs> and he said, you know, he said, there can't be too many Chip Ingram. So I picked it up and wondered, and I looked at the little picture, and I thought, that's that guy that played for me all those years ago. And um, he uh, read that book and came to know the Lord, and we've since kind of had some great conversation and time. But um, I, I really think uh, it, 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 a coach is someone who knows that, you know, coaches don't win games. I've, I've never coached a game where I made the winning shot or even scored a point. And I think as a pastor, when you read Ephesians 4, you realize our job is to equip God's people to do the work of service. And so, uh, you know, the, the heroes in our church are not any of the staff. It's the key lay people that he's using at Google and Facebook and, you know, Microsoft and on the website and at stay-at-home moms. But uh, they, they have networks. They're the people that are changing the world. And so that coaching mentality has really helped me be more of an equipper rather than, um, I think, you know, we as pastors, we always have a temptation to unconsciously become the spotlight. And I think Scripture's clear. is worth the shepherd's to help the sheep uh, do the work. I mean, who can talk to a doctor, me or another doctor? Who can help a, a woman who's been raped, me or a woman who's been raped? I mean, who can help an executive understand the pressures and demands and God's power, me or an executive? So, you know, our job is to help those people uh, just become all God wants them to be. And so it's pretty exciting. It's a pretty exciting team to coach. Pastor Chip Ingram with us today, senior pastor at Venture Christian Church in Los Gatos. Information, by the way, on the web at venture.cc. That's venture.cc. Chip, of course, is also the speaker on the nationally syndicated broadcast, Living on the Edge, the author of more than, oh, a dozen or more best-selling books. We're talking a bit about, uh, well, not just his work, his ministry, his life verse, but most importantly, uh, th this notion that God, at the end of the day, is really about drawing us in compelling us into relationship. We'll pause on that point, come back to more of our conversation as Lifeline continues. 